Well, this morning we're going to to talk about the issue of to imitate what is good. To imitate what is good. Now, children are born uh, with their worlds revolving around themselves. And those of you who had children have noticed this. And if you haven't had children yet, just remember your childhood. Everything revolved around you. So I'm picking on the kids a little bit. But it's really I'm picking on all of us. If you think about your own life, you know, just put a, an imaginary piece of paper before you and it's got three columns. First column, the header is God. Second column, the header is others. The third column, header is you. Now think about your day. If you were to log every thought, every action, every word, and, and when you thought about God, you could put a little tick mark in God, the God column. When you thought about others or did something for others, you could put a little tick in the others column. And when you thought about yourself or did something for yourself, you put a little tick in the you column. At the end of the day, what's that going to look like? It's going to be a lot of little ticks in the you column. right? That is what sin does to us. And we're all in the same boat. John Bunyan once wrote in this, in this regard, he says, sin is worse than the devil. If you are more afraid of the devil than sin, you know little of its badness and thus little of Christ's love. He continues and said, if a man does not know the nature of his wound, how can he know the nature and excellence of its cure? If you don't understand the, the wound, how will we ever understand the nature of its cure? And he says this as well, since filthiness goes beyond our knowledge, it pollutes us, and we are not even aware of it. Now, John, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which some of you may have, may have read that, lived many years ago. So it's, it's kind of helpful sometimes to get out of our own century right, and look at the perspective of a believer that lived many years ago. He says sin has a way of, of blinding us. And when it does blind us, it blinds us in such a way that that we don't even know it. Like we become so self-absorbed and so self-consumed that we don't even know we're living that way. It, sin has a way of, of binding us and enslaving us, and yet we are totally convinced that we're free. Right? And you see this all around. And it, it, it plagues us because even those who are in Christ we continue to still struggle against the flesh and the flesh is still there. But sin has a way of, of binding, enslaving us where yet we think we're free. We think we're okay, all the while dying of sin. And the Bible is full of examples of this. And in particular, it's full of examples of leaders who are like this or so-called leaders, people who wanted to be leaders, the Bible records a sad history of those who, who are so blinded by their sin that, that they presumed upon their own skills of leadership and they assumed pridefully places of leadership that weren't assigned to them by God. And they longed to be first and they, they longed to be in positions of leadership which had not been given to them. And we could point to Satan himself in this regard. Satan was made as a beautiful creature, one of the crowning, crowning creations of, of God. And yet 
he presumed to take God's place. He wanted to be first. He desired to supplant God, but he was subsequently thrown out of heaven. Another example might be Korah. You have the great leader of Moses. And yet Korah thought he knew better than Moses, could do a better job than Moses, and so led a rebellion against Moses. And God caused the earth to open up and swallow Korah. You have Abimelech who wanted to be first and killed all of his brothers just so he could be king. But but God caused a heavy millstone to be thrown down from a tower. A woman threw it down over the tower trying to protect the tower and killed Abimelech. Then you have the scribes and the Pharisees. They wanted to be first. They put themselves first. They they prayed out in public and in places of uh, where people could see them pray. And they made sure that when they gave money, everybody noticed that. They called a lot of attention to it. But you know, Jesus says they're shut out of the kingdom of heaven. There's a few Pharisees and Sadducees that repented and believed in Jesus Christ, but most of them were shut out of eternity. Even the disciples, even Jesus' own disciples so got so caught up in wanting to be first that they were arguing about who would be first. God transformed them, opened their eyes, but even they weren't free of this. And so today we're, we're going to go through a passage of Scripture that shows us really two men, but, but one in particular who wanted to be first. He wanted that first place. And unless he repented of his sins, which is not recorded in Scripture, he is judged for eternally for his um, evil deeds. We'll see another man who, who chose to be, who had a good testimony. He chose to do what is right. But lest we think this is just a problem that is eons old, let's go through the text and not be blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. Not be blinded by the temptation to put ourselves first. Not be, um, to be on guard against pride and uh, to embrace the Christ-honoring characteristics of a true worker with the truth. I mean, that's the larger context of Third John. It's about being a worker with the truth, about embracing those who are who are doing the work of the ministry, gospel ministers who needed support, and to work alongside with them and do that do that work. But in doing so, looking at this, we at the close of John's letter, he draws attention to two men in particular, one who's unfaithful, one who's faithful, but from both their lives we can learn what what Christ honoring characteristics are of a, of a true worker with with the truth. If you're going to be a worker with the truth, these things are going to be true of your life. So through the through the pen of the apostle John, writing to Gaius and Third John, we're going to see three defining characteristics of a true worker with the truth. Let's just read Third John together. Um, if you haven't already turned there, please uh, turn there. Or you can just listen as I read along. Uh, third letter of John. Let's read the whole letter. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 15 this morning. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. 
Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now again, we're going to see through the Apostle John, that who is writing to Gaius about the issue of you could say hospitality, but specific hospitality, gospel hospitality, hospitality and supporting traveling missionaries. We're going to see through his pen three defining characteristics of a, of a true worker with the truth. So first of all, from verses 9 and 10, we'll see a true worker with the truth um, is identified by his submission. He's identified by submission. And, and we see this. In verses, uh, again, in verses 9 and 10, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now, Diotrephes is kind of the opposite. So my point is the opposite of what Diotrephes is, is showing us. Here you have a prideful man, but a worker with the truth is going to be, he's going to be humble, he's going to be submissive. So a worker first, a worker with the truth is going to be submissive to apostolic authority. Apostolic is just meaning the authority of an apostle. And that's, that's who was writing this letter, was the apostle John. And before John condemns Diotrephes' actions, he, he lets Gaius know that, that he had previously provided instructions. See that in verse 9? He says, he says uh, I wrote something to the church. Now, we, John does not specify exactly what he wrote. He just says he wrote something. What is this something? What did he write? Well, the, the context of Third John suggests that, that that letter was about hospitality. Not just hospitality as we understand it, but hospitality of gospel ministers. In that time, people were sent out from local churches to do ministry in places where the church did not exist or needed to be strengthened. And oftentimes when they went to a new area, they would they would go to that area just preaching Christ and they would not charge anything. Uh, they would not charge anything for hearing the gospel and they would not expect the people who are who are not saved to support them. So that was very different from the way that philosophers would travel from city to city and they 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 charge for speaking and they would gather large, large crowds and the more crowds they gathered, the more money they they earn. And we, we've talked about that some in the past. So. These, these workers are, are going out um, in need of support of other churches, of other believers. And so that, that letter of which John talks about is, is a letter that's encouraging that kind of support to missionaries, what we would call missionaries. Uh, that, that term is not used in this text, but essentially that's what uh, John is talking about. Now notice who, who John is writing to. He says, I wrote something to the church. What, who is the church? Is this the church universal? Well, not, not likely, uh, since that, 
that letter even doesn't even exist in your Bible. It's it's not the letter of Second John. Second John, the contents of of Second John are are slightly different. In fact, Second John warns against hospitality of people who aren't faithful to the gospel. Um, so that that letter is is uh, or that the church that is addressed there is is um, is likely that the church that Diotrephes and Gaius were part of. During this time, John ministered in the city of Ephesus, and and he he's sent out those who work with him, people to preach the gospel and to strengthen churches from the city of Ephesus. So, in ministering to the church, he's not he's not addressing uh, the church of Ephesus because he could do that verbally, but he is doing that. He he is addressing this letter to the church, to the church where Gaius and Diotrephes resided. Now, some people think that Diotrephes was a leader in one church and Gaius was a leader in the other church. These churches were close by. That that doesn't really seem to um, it, that doesn't really seem to be the case. And we don't know for sure, and we don't need to know for sure. But it certainly seems like Gaius and Diotrephes were part of the same church, because because Paul, I mean, John talks about he's going to come visit Gaius and he's going to come deal with Diotrephes' evil deeds. He mentions those two things. So it, it, it seems like they are together in, in the same church. Now, it might be helpful for us to, to note that as John writes, he's writing both to encourage Gaius and, and to uh, encourage Gaius not only for what he's done, but to encourage him to continue that kind of hospitality. Now, what we see here is in verse 9, is that he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So although what John wrote wasn't part of Scripture, it wasn't part of uh, the Word of God that was breathed out by God, it nonetheless was authoritative because it was coming from an apostle. And so John wrote expecting that the church would listen to that instruction, but Diotrephes did not. He, he rejected that. Diotrephes rejected what the Apostle John wrote. Now, who is Diotrephes? Well, Di- Diotrephes only appears in this in this letter of Third John, much like um, some of the other people in this letter. For example, Gaius and Demetrius. Actually, it is it is interesting that that Diotrephes' character is emphasized here more than even his name. So, in our English text, it, it talks about Diotrephes first. It mentions him first in verse nine. He says, "But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, does not accept what we say." In the, in the Greek, there's emphasis on there on, on the fact that he loves to be first, right? The one who loves to be first, Diotrephes, rejects what we say. So it's really a, a judgment on Diotrephes' moral character. Now, when John writes, he, he does not accept what we say. It, it, it's that he does not welcome what we say. That's what the LSB translates it as. The, the phrase, what we say, is really a paraphrase of, of us. So John is really saying he doesn't accept us. Right? Diotrephes had rejected the letter, and John John saw that not only was this a, a rejection of the, the letter, rejection of the authority, but it's a rejection of, of John himself, not, not personally, but as an apostle. And so John's, John sees this, and in his writing to Gaius to say, you'll see in a moment, he'll, he's going to address Diotrephes' action. But John sees this not just simply as a personal rejection. If it was a personal rejection, I think John would have overlooked it. But this wasn't simply a personal um, rejection. It wasn't a personal disagreement between 
two brothers. This was clear rebellion on the part of Diotrephes. He chose to disregard what the Apostle John had written. And and what we see here is that this isn't just a one-time event. If you look at your text, he says, Diotrephes does not accept what we say. Notice the present tense is used, does not. It's not did not, it's it's does not. So it doesn't this suggests to us that this was the pattern of Diotrephes' life. He rejected John's authority as an apostle. This was his characteristic. Now, why does John condemn Diotrephes in, in his letter? He condemns him not only because he rejects authority, but because his actions show that that Diotrephes was not being submissive to not only apostolic authority, but to the scriptures themselves. You see, a true work of the truth is going to be submissive to apostolic authority. For, for us, apostolic authority is contained in the scriptures. Right? That's what we're called to, to be submissive to since the apostles are, are no longer here and on the scene. But there's a greater authority than the apostles. There's a, a greater authority than the word of God, and that's the Lord himself. And the Lord is revealed in his word. I'm not trying to put those two against each other. But, but John wrote to deal with, uh, really warn Gaius about Diotrephes' lack of submission to apostolic authority. And how, is this, how is this drawn out? Well, well, the first thing that we see is that he loves to be first. This is, this is the Apostle John's diagnosis of Diotrephes' heart condition. Everything else flows from this. Everything else is mentioned flows from this one problem. He loves to be first. And, and the description of Diotrephes is he loves to be first among them. Right? Notice that. Among them. Among who is the them? Right? I, I think that makes sense that that's the church. He likes to be first among the church. He loves to be first among the church, in fact. And the phrase loves to be first is a, is a translation of a compound Greek word. It's just one word in the Greek. It's taking the word for brotherly love, philo, and putting it together with the word first, right? Loving to be first. And it's really, isn't it just taking brotherly love and turning it on its head? It's making it its exact opposite. Right? Brotherly love is supposed to be caring for one another. Right? This is caring for yourself. That's what loving first is. You know, cast your brother. He's to serve you. You're more important. That, that's diatrophies. That's what the word literally means. Love of first. Desiring to be first. Uh, commentator D. Edmund Hebert explains it this way. He says, this word is a compound particle found only here in the New Testament. And it portrays an ambitious, self-seeking, power-hungry individual who is aggressively, who aggressively sought to be at the head of things, to rule over others. And whatever his position in the church, John's picture makes it clear that he was able to exercise a good deal of power in the assembly. He was motivated by an aggressive passion to be in charge. Because we see diatrophies and some of the things that he does, commentators have thought that diatrophies was uh, an elder in the church, or, or perhaps one of the elders, or perhaps even a single elder in this particular church. We really don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us, and, and because it doesn't tell us, I'd say we don't really need to know. What we do know with certainty is that Diotrephes was a person exercising great influence. He was acting like a leader. Whether he was an official leader or not, we do not know. But he was certainly acting like a leader. Now, remember, his character is, his ongoing characteristic of his life was that he loved to be first. And, and unfortunately, in the church today, we see a lot of so-called pastors, many of them on TV, who are, have this, demonstrate this same characteristic. And, but it's not just true of pastors. 
Okay, you have to guard your own heart with this. Let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, uh, A.T. Robertson uh, is has uh, several helpful commentaries, uh, particularly on, on word meanings out. But he was a pastor. And years ago, he wrote an article on diatrophies for his denomination. He wrote a paper on diatrophies. But before it was published, the editor told him that 25 deacons stopped the paper to show the resentment against being personally attacked in the paper. Right? Think about that. So he wrote a paper about diatrophies, expositing scripture, and 25 deacons from his church, obviously a larger church, 25 deacons within at least the denomination or whatever, said, he's writing about me. He's attacking me. So they wanted to stop the paper, but they didn't stop the self to like examine their own lives. That's what I'm talking about, the blindness of sin. And, and that's why we need to be submissive to right authority in our lives when something is amiss. The, the church must test the men that they put forward as leaders. Far too many churches just make selection of deacons, a selection of elders, a, a good boys club, or they look at, say, he's a good businessman, he, he, he can help lead, or they just look at all the wrong characteristics there are there are biblical qualifications for elders, for deacons that we must adhere to. But the problem isn't just about elders and deacons. You know, in many churches, it's known that there's a, what's called a church boss. And the church boss doesn't even have to be a deacon or an elder. And what I mean by that is that's the person who controls the finances. And they have a lot of influence within a church. So I don't think we have any of those here. Uh, not that I know of. But, um, so I'm not speaking of Medina Bible Church, but it's true, right? In seminary, we're warned about these type of people, right? Who try to control the church behind the scenes. So, again, the problem isn't just a problem of pastors or leaders. It's a, it's a every man's, every woman's problem. We like to be first. We like to have things our particular way. We have to guard against it. So men like these must not be allowed to influence the church and direct the church. So he'll destroy the church. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. And, and that's why John says he's going to deal with Diotrephes. He's going to come and deal with them when he visits Gaius. Now notice that. He says, he says uh, in um, verse 10, he says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds. Now the phrase, if I come, in English suggests that there's some amount of doubt as to whether John would visit or not. But, but there's really not any doubt in this particular uh, context. And in fact, that phrase can be used in other places to talk, to really talk about whenever I come. So it's, it's probably a, a better way to think about that. Whenever I come. And the reason that we know that John is going to visit, because he says that. He says that in verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 14, he says, but I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. So it, it doesn't seem likely that John is doubtful about his visit. He just doesn't know when, when that will occur. But when he occurs, he is going to bring to remembrance the works that Diotrephes has done. That is, he's going to confront Diotrephes and deal with those as they deserve to be dealt with. Now, keep in mind, John's uh, actions here are not vindictive. He's not going after Diotrephes because of a personal attack or a personal slight against John. He's doing this out of love and concern for the Lord's church and really for the Lord himself and for the progress of of the gospel it, it is it is extremely important that we we understand that i mean the the bible prohibits any kind of like personal action uh personal revenge 
In fact, in, in Paul wrote in Romans 12, I'll read that to you. Romans 12 verses 9 to 21 are very instructive in this manner. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And never take revenge. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Believe room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, when the Apostle John came, he was going to call attention to, to Diotrephes' actions. What would he call attention to? Well, we were, we're told specifically. Notice the first thing that he says in verse 10. He'll call attention to his deeds, which he does. And the first one is unjustly accusing us with wicked words. He was slandering the Apostle John. He was attacking the Apostle John verbally with unjust accusations. Um, these unjust accusations included John and included his associates and perhaps the other apostles themselves, though John was the last remaining apostle. They weren't there to defend themselves. The idea that Diotrephes was slandering John and attacking John. Why would he do this? Remember, Diotrephes, his diagnosis is he loves to be what? First. Because he loved to be first. He needed to remove um, any person that would have an more authority or more influence than he does. So he's attacking John to kind of reduce his influence within that particular church, their local church. Sounds like uh, political leaders today, right? Attacking each other. Why do they attack each other? Right? To try to, to, try to get you to, to, to listen to them more than the other person. It doesn't usually work. But nonetheless, it, it, um, it is done. He attacks him verbally. What else did the diatrophies do? Well, secondly, he did not welcome the itinerant preachers that John sent. Notice he says, after he says, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, he goes, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren. So diatrophies wasn't just satisfied to attack the apostle John. And, and for all we know, that first letter that John talks about that he wrote, he could have sent that to diatrophies and diatrophies could have torn it up put it in the fire, never read it, church never saw it. And so that's why now at this stage that John is telling Gaius, hey, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes didn't accept it. But it's not enough for Diotrephes just to verbally attack John. He's, he's not going to help these gospel ministers himself because they're sent by John. Diotrephes did nothing to help these itinerant preachers. They came requesting help that perhaps they even had that first letter from the Apostle John himself at that time, rejecting the letter and rejecting these men because they were sent by John. Okay? So this the idea here 
is that these men were sent out by John, were sent out probably by the church in Ephesus. Um, they needed assistance to carry on their gospel ministry, and Diotrephes didn't receive them, didn't welcome, didn't give them hos- hospitality. He turned these men away in their time of need. What does that say about his heart? Well, it brings to mind what James says in James 2.14. I'm going to read it for you. James 2.14. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Now, James is addressing the kind of faith on a human level. He's saying, what good is your faith? You tell me you have faith, but if I don't see any change in your life, if I don't see you doing something different in your life, what good is your faith? He's, he's approaching it from a different standpoint than, than Paul addresses the issue. But, but the point I want to make here is that by diatrophies, turning these men away in their time of need, he is, he is showing us what is really in his heart. His faith is a dead faith. He would proclaim to have faith. He would proclaim to believe in Christ. But at least from these actions, we, have, we would say that his faith is a dead faith. And, and not only did he, not, did he reject these men, but you see what he does next? He, he says he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who di- desire to do so. So those within his church that saw the evil actions of Diotrephes. They saw these men turned away, and they were saying, no, that's, that's not right. We, we need to help these people. We need to provide hospitality. We need to provide a place to stay and food and, and whatever else that they might need. So there are people within the church that saw that and knew that was wrong and wanted to do something to help out. But Diotrephes stood in their way. It says he forbid them. He, he thought the church was his church. He forgot that the church is Christ's church. And Diotrephes wanted these people to obey him, not, not anybody else. And so he, he tried to suppress them. He, he, he forbade them. So he's actually, with that position of leadership that we talked about, he issued some kind of command that's not here, but he forbade them um, from helping, and he expected these people to obey him, to listen to him even though John had instructed the exact opposite. And then look what he did to the people that didn't listen, that said, you know what? We just have to do what is right, even if Diotrephes doesn't like it. We are going to do what is right, even if he forbids it. What does he do? He says he puts them out of the church. Right? So he forbids those who desire to do so, that is, desire to help, and puts them out of the church. If they don't listen to them, he's going to put them out. Now, the, the wording, the, the way that this is worded, We're not certain if this was actually what was going on or if it's just what he desired, what he was trying to do. But you see his hard attitude. He wanted to be the one in control. He did not. He rejected these men. They're from John. He did not want to help them. And he didn't want anybody else to help them. And if you didn't listen to him, he was putting you out of the church. Or at least he was going to try to put you out of the church. Does Does that sound like godly? Christ-honoring response? Well, no. But it kind of sounds like sometimes some churches today, and and there aren't many that exercise church discipline anymore, but even the the few that do, sometimes it sounds capricious. Uh, What they do sounds capricious, like 
what John, uh, what Diotrephes was trying to do here in his own church. So to- Diotrephes could not tolerate any competition at all, sought to eliminate that competition. Again, we, lest we be too hard on Diotrephes, we have to realize our own uh, proneness to put ourselves first. And, and, and we just have to realize what God calls us to as leaders and as believers in Christ. And, and we see a glimpse of this in Mark 10. In Mark 10, 42, when the disciples wanted to be first, in particular when John, the same John who's writing this letter, when James and John wanted to be first among the disciples, they wanted to get that preeminent, you know, the preeminent two spots on Jesus' right hand and left hand. So what, what, he, what they wanted that, what did Jesus do? He said to them in Mark 10, 42, listen to this. He says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not to be. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Think about those last words Jesus said. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Do you really want to be first? allow your own desire right i would say sinful desire to be first to cause you to to turn that around turn that desire around and turn it allow you to be the, the really the last serving all others and why do we do this in that same text 10, mark 10:45 for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life what a ransom for many jesus who deserves all worship he has all authority he has the right to be listened to every time came to serve us. He came to serve us. And and that's the attitude that we need to have. And even uh, the Apostle Peter in his letter, in 1 Peter 5, just a, by a few pages left in your Bible, 1 Peter 5, he says this to leaders in the church. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Look at verse 3. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So elders are called not to lord it over, not to do what Diotrephes was doing. Diotrephes was lording it over people, and, and unbiblically so. Remember, we all like to have things our own way. That's our sinful disposition. That's what we have to push against. Even as Christians, we have to push against that flesh. And when we exercise faith in Jesus Christ and repent of our sins, He gives us the, the ability to, to resist that, to become the servant of all. He gives us eternal life. We are made totally new, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 5.17. There he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So there is this capability within God's people for change because of his power living within you and the newness of life where you can see what is right and what is wrong. Understand that we don't even know what right and wrong is unless we're dependent upon God's word. Right? And God promises to change your outlook. For all those that haven't repented of their sins and believe in Christ, 
you're headed on the road to to destruction. That's the broad road to destruction. The the broad road to judgment. But to, to everyone who believes in Christ and repents of their sins and goes through the narrow gate, the gate to eternal life, God promises to save. And when he saves you, he changes you. He transforms you. So have faith in Jesus Christ and he will make you a worker with the truth and, and he will give you the, the, the help that you need to, to walk with him, to, to be obedient and, and serve others and not serve yourself. So a worker with the truth is identified by submission. Submission first and foremost, to, uh, first to uh, the, the apostolic authority, and we say the scriptures, but also to the Lord himself. But a worker with the truth is identified by what he imitates. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Let me just read those for you. Um, in 3 John 11 and 12. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, know that our testimony is true. So John abruptly ends his discussion of diatrophies with the, with the word beloved, again, trying to, to show Gaius how much he cares about him, trying to encourage him. He says, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. What will you imitate? What are you imitating? And notice here that John gives us the negative first. Do not imitate what is evil. And then he gives a positive, but imitate what is good. Uh, this is very uh, familiar language with John. If you read the first John in particular, you'll see that he loves contrast. He teaches by contrast. And that's what he's doing here. Now, what does it mean when we talk about mimic or to imitate? <clears throat> now, I, when I thought about this word, I was thinking about when the McConnells were with us um, a few weeks ago. Uh, Jonathan uh, McConnell, who I asked you to pray for because he he is recovering um from shingles getting infected in his eye. But Jonathan has a very uncanny ability to mimic people's voices. And he does a, a, a great Paul Washer so much that if, he, if you didn't see him, you would actually think it's Paul Washer. In fact, his dad taught a preaching class for their church. And his dad jokingly said, we have a special guest. This is in England. We have a special guest today. And, and Jonathan's in the hallway and he starts talking like Paul Washer. And everybody's eyes go like, what? Paul Washer is here? Well, he wasn't there. Well, kind of in person he was. But, but that's the idea. It's you, you hear or see something and then you copy that idea. Right? And, and sometimes we copy good things and sometimes we copy bad things. And, and this, this is a, a timeless principle. I mean, it's, this principle is stuck in, the, in a passage about hospitality. One leader who did what is evil. Another who's doing what is good. So I think that's that's why it's here, but it applies to so many areas of our lives. Don't do what is evil, do what is good. I mean, you just take that as your life verse as a as a believer right now in our society. Don't mimic what is evil. Anything that God calls sin is evil. So all that's going on in our society right now, you cannot mimic that unless you want to be disobedient to God. Mimic what is good, what is true, what is right. And, and don't be confused by our societies turning uh, good into evil and evil into good. As right now, we're living, you're seeing prophecy fulfilled. We live in a day and age 
where what God calls evil, mankind is calling good and overturning that. Right? The traditional family, not good. Right? So it, you see all of that being overturned in our culture. Submission to authority, not good. Rebellion to authority, all that's praised. So you go through all these different areas, but, but realize this principle helps us to know how, how to live. We are to mimic what is good and right. And, and John says here, don't, don't mimic, don't mimic what is evil. And, and we really have to guard our influences in our lives in this way. And because this is why scripture says a, li- a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You take a little bit of leaven and those of you who make bread understand this. You put a little bit in, you work it in and it spreads throughout the whole loaf rises. Our scripture puts it another way. Bad company corrupts good morals. So you can have really good morals. You hang out with, with people who are, who are doing bad things. You're going to end up mimicking them. You're going to end up copying them. And, and so the influence in the church was diatrophies. Right? And probably Gaius couldn't do much about that. Otherwise, something else, something would have been done. But he, John is charging Gaius to don't imitate that. And the way this is written, it suggests that that Gaius had already begun to imitate the evil. Now, don't don't misunderstand me. I don't think Gaius was tempted to do the same kind of response that Diotrephes was doing. But I think what might be happening, and this is in the white pages, so this is Mark's interpretation. What I think might be happening is is that. Um, Gaius wanted to help, did help, because that's what John tells us. We know that for sure. But then Diotrephes found out and, and became, and really went after him. And went after him so much that threatened to put him out of the church. And maybe maybe Gaius is one of those individuals that Diotrephes was like trying to put out of the church. And and so Gaius is like, you know what, I, I liked helping them. Maybe in his mind he was he was having questions about whether to help traveling missionaries again. He's like, I just don't know if I can do that again and, and be the brunt of, of Diotrephes' massive blows, his aggression. So perhaps that's going on. At a very minimum, it's a warning to Gaius to not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. And, and the good here is receiving these traveling missionaries, receiving them, taking care of them, and, and supporting them. I mean, that's the context. Look at verse 8 just a minute. We talked about last week. Therefore, we ought to support such men. So because that support is, is called for, we have a duty to do it. That's the good that needs to be mimicked. Right? You don't worry about what is evil. And in this case, you don't mimic what is evil. In this case, he's saying, John, don't, don't worry about what is evil. Right? And just to apply this to our lives, when we commit ourselves to do what is right, don't worry about the consequences. Let God take care of the consequences. Whatever those consequences are, loss of friendship, loss of job, loss of, you know, whatever it is, let God determine that. Let God take care of the consequences. Just commit yourself to do what is right. When you think about the consequences, you make it a lot harder on yourself to do what is right because you begin to thinking about, well, I could lose my job if I, if I speak out against this or if I voice my opinion about this, right? Well, that might be true, but if you lose a job for the will of God reason, for a good reason, he'll provide another one. So you just just do what is right. Commit yourself to do what is good. Yeah. Beloved, remember here that the command to imitate is a command to copy. And this is seen in other places in Scripture. For example, in Hebrews 13, 7, there the author of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. That is, follow their faith. 
The Apostle John used this word in speaking to the Thessalonica, the Thessalonica church. He says there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we did not act in an unruly manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the authority, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that we that so that you would imitate us. So he, he set an example for them to follow that they would that they would imitate his his practice. And whether you imitate what is evil or imitate what is good, you can look at your life and you can see the ramifications of what that says, the implications of that pattern. We see that in continuing on in verse 11. He said, the one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So for the one who imitates what is evil, what is that saying about him? He has not seen God. And notice the contrast there. John loves contrast, so he's getting back into what he, what he, how he likes to write, how he likes to teach. He says, the one who does good is of God. So the one who is imitating what is good is of God. The term of God is shorthand for born of God. That is, you're born again. You, you have the spirit living within you, and you are a child of God, and, and you are living a certain way. Now, you're not a child of God be, because you live a certain way. No, the, 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 your, the pattern of your life, the imitating what is good, is just the fruit of what is true of your life. Because no one can do enough good deeds to earn salvation. No one can do enough good deeds to make you a child of God. You can't make yourself a child of God. That's the analogy Jesus uses in John 3. He says you must be born again. And you don't have any control over being born again. You've got to, you've got to turn to God. Repent of your sins. Have faith in Christ. And, and ask God to, to birth you again spiritually. So that you have the Holy Spirit living within you. To help you be obedient to the word. And if you do, you're going to live a certain way. So that's what he's, that's what he's saying. Those, the, the one who does good is of God. But the one who does evil has not seen God. Notice he changes a little bit. He says the one who does evil, he doesn't say is not of God. He says the one who does evil has what? Not seen God. And, he, and it draws more emphasis to the fact that not only is that person, not only they're not saved, but they don't even know God. They have never seen God. They've never even caught a glimpse of his glory. For if they had caught a glimpse of his glory, they would live a different way. They would repent of their sins. Or, or at the very minimum, they would fall on their knees before him because of his holiness and their sinfulness. So these are, these are the consequences of that kind of flow or the, the implications that are shown to us by whether we mimic good or mimic evil. Uh, John says something similar in 1 John 3. He says, 1 John 3, 4, he says, Everyone who does sin also does lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or come to know him. Now when he says sins, he's talking about the pattern of sin. So just, just to be very clear, we're not talking about any kind of perfectionism. No one except Christ is perfect. Right? And God's working in us, and our, he's taking us progressively in sanctification from the moment of salvation until we become more like Christ, which is in glory. It's not here. Right? But the, when they, he says, when the person who sins has not seen God, it's that person who sins in a pattern, in a, a pattern that is unbroken by repentance. There might be remorse, might feel sorry, but there's no true repentance. Right? That person has never seen God. 
verse 12 is an illustration of, of someone who does good. And this is where we get to see Demetrius. Who is Demetrius? Well, the, the, the name Demetrius only appears two places in Scripture. One is in Acts 19. Acts 19 is where Paul is in Ephesus. He's, a, he's opposing uh, silversmiths. Um, and, and you've got this Demetrius who just attacks. He leads an attack against the Apostle Paul. That's all we know of him. Now, there are some people who want to say that the Demetrius of 3 John is a repentant Demetrius of Acts 19. Right? That'd make a nice story. But it's all based on conjecture. So it seems to me like these are two different men. Uh, this is because a story that that um, uh, of someone whose life changed so dynamically seems like there would have been something else about him in Scripture of his repentance, particularly in, in Paul's day. But um, it, it seems like so. This is a, a different, uh, different Demetrius, and and so John gives Gaius an example of someone who is doing good. Demetrius has received a good testimony. Uh, uh, the word the word good is italicized. It's, it, this is his testimony. This is someone who is doing what is right, and we believe that Demetrius was the leader of this second band of missionaries that was going forth. And in fact, he probably carried this very letter. So the letter of 3 John was carried by Demetrius to Gaius. And so this is John's commendation of Demetrius to, to Gaius. So he's saying this is someone who you need to support. He has a good testimony. Notice that um, he uses three witnesses. Right? So scripture says that on the basis of two or three witnesses, the facts will be confirmed. So he gives three witnesses here. The first one is a testimony from everyone. From everyone. Now he doesn't, he's speaking in hyperbole. So he doesn't mean everyone across the face of the globe. But everybody who knew Demetrius would give him a good report. Right? That's what he means. And, and, and he says there, not only do they give him a good report, but from the truth itself. So here he personifies truth. And he's saying you have the body of truth, which is the word of God. So if you examine Demetrius' life and compare it to the truth of the word of God, the truth of the word of God is going to give a good testimony to how Demetrius is living. Again, he'd be someone we would say is above reproach. Not perfect, but he's above reproach. And then the third testimony comes from John himself. He says, and we add our testimony. And and you know that our testimony is true. So there he's probably speaking. This is John and and those who are these associates, those who are with him, he said, we add our own testimony. We know Demetrius personally. We testify to his good character, to, to, his, to how he lives his life. He's not coming to put himself first. He's coming to serve. He's coming to preach Christ and put Christ first. So that's what Demetrius is doing here. He adds, John adds a, a little personal note. He says, and you know, our testimony is true. Again, this is a little phrase that helps us understand that, that Gaius and John had a personal relationship with one another. Gaius personally knew John and knew him to be a person who was true and living out what he was teaching. So again, we just step back and look at a pattern of our lives. Right? What are we mimicking? Evil or good? Right? The one, if you've noticed the pattern of your life doing mimicking evil, following the patterns of this world, Following what, what the scriptures say are evil, right? The call there is to repent of your sins and believe in Christ. Don't keep going down that path. Sin has blinded you, and you are going down a path that leads to judgment, judgment of God. But it doesn't have to lead that way. The Lord provides a Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who calls us to repentance and who died the death um, that we deserved. He died in our place so that God could offer us forgiveness, forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. So commit ourselves, those of you who are believers, commit yourself to imitating what is good, even in difficult circumstances. And again, how do we know what is good? Going back to the word of God on our own, we're not going to know what good and evil are, right? Not to, not to the full extent. We need the plumb line of the Word of God to direct our lives. So, so we've seen that a worker of the truth is is submissive, and they imitate. You could say they they're known by the pattern of their lives. They imitate what is good, but a worker of the truth is identified by the company he keeps. And we'll just look at this really quick from verses fifteen thirteen to fifteen. And this is just the closing of John's letter. Whereas Diotrephes rejected John's authority and counsel, Gaius welcomed that. And you see here, John says, he says, I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and speak to you face to face. You know, he's wanting to come. He has much on his mind. And we say, why didn't he write it? He doesn't tell us. Perhaps time. Perhaps he got to get this out. Also, it was expensive to, to write things. It wasn't like the cheap paper that we have today. You can just write and, you know, if you make a mistake, you, you crumple it up and throw it away. Right? So whatever they wrote on, whatever, whatever John was writing on, uh, papyrus or animal skin, it was not cheap. Right? So we don't know all the reasons, but he says, I don't want to write all that. I want to talk personally. So perhaps there's things that John wanted to talk about that he knew shouldn't go in a letter. And he wanted to talk about some of those those personal things face to face. So it shows you that they had a a, a good relationship. And I guess that's the, a point of application. It's incidental to the to the book, but it's like you need to have people in your life who are influence you to the truth, who can speak into your lives, and who you can speak into their lives. So that's what we see here, and and he says he says uh, really as a clo- matter of closing, but also. Uh, as a prayer, he says, peace be to you. It's a traditional Jewish closing, but it's but it's not just without thought. He is saying that as like a, a shorthand prayer that, that Gaius would be at peace with God and, and experience the peace in his local church, um, even through these difficult circumstances that he was having with with diatrophies. And, and notice, too, that, that it wasn't just John and Gaius who had a relationship. Gaius had a relationship with others. So he speaks about them as friends. He says, they're the friends greet you. Now greet the friends by name. It's the only place in scripture where Christians, in this case, are, are greeted this way with the word friend, with the exception of how Jesus talked about his disciples. On the night before he, he died, the night before he was betrayed, he called his disciples friends. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so I think I think the connection here, why why John is calling Christians friends in this case instead of just brothers, that's more typical, greet the brethren by name. Here he's saying friends by name because these are Christians who are being obedient to the word and he's encouraging Gaius to be obedient to the word. So I, I think that's why he uses the word friends here instead of like just brethren. So think about that. Who Who are your friends? Who are those who influence you the most? Are they a good influence? Right? Now, I'm not saying don't have friendships with unbelievers. We need to have friendships with unbelievers. But our closest influencers 
should be Christians. And from that, we should be reaching out to unbelievers, telling them the gospel so they can hear the gospel, repent, and be saved. So, beloved, let us strive in the strength of the Lord to be men and women who are identified by submission to the Word of God, to God Himself, by our imitation of what is good, and by the good company we keep. And these dark hours, the church must be more resolute than ever to, to live lives of holiness, to hold fast to these principles for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. Um, let me just, in closing, read Philippians 2. I think this nicely summarizes what we've been talking about. Philippians 2, being at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a great sacrifice the Lord made so that we might know him, we, that we might have our sins forgiven, and that we might walk in the truth and be workers with the truth. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness, your mercy. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins so that we could have forgiveness, so we could have eternal life, and that we could know you, and that we could know you as our as our shepherd, as a good and gracious God, instead of just the judge. Oh, Lord God, thank you for working in our lives. Help us, Lord, to guard against the sin which so easily entangles. Help us, Lord God, to live our lives in service to others, that we would be servants to them, seeking their good. Continue to transform us by your word and by the power of your spirit so that we think less of ourselves, more of others, and most of all about you and living for you. Oh God, help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.